you have a Bible with you, uh, please open to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. Glad you got a week off from uh, Ecclesiastes last week. But now we're back to thinking about despair again. <laughs> Aren't you glad you came to church? Uh, today we're going to talk about um, how pleasure does not fulfill its promise to give us a meaningful and satisfied life. The pursuit of pleasure just doesn't work to that end. I'm trying to think how many of you are likely to even know who Peggy Lee is, and it's probably not many of you, but um, she sang, let's just say, around the 1960s. Very cool singer. Uh, she had a number uh, called Is That All There Is, which was half spoken word and half jazzy, uh, but pretty Ecclesiastes-ish, as it were. She says, when I was 12 years, old, my daddy t- 12 years old, my daddy took me to the circus, the greatest show on earth. There were clowns and elephants and dancing bears, and a beautiful lady in pink tights flew high above our heads. And as I sat there watching, I had the feeling something was wrong. Something was missing. I don't know what, But when it was over, I said to myself, is this all there is to the circus? And then the chorus, is this all there is? Is this all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball, if that's all there is. And then she had another also spoken verse and pretty cool uh, section about possessions and saying, is that all there is to them? And then about love, is that all there is to that? Um, Is that all there is? Is the question that pleasure uh, pushes down on us. Uh, Just as much in the 1960s as in the 960s BC, when uh, Solomon lived, and Solomon may well be our author in Ecclesiastes, it seems if it's not him, it's someone writing in the guise of Solomon, the king of Israel, who says also that pleasure doesn't satisfy us. And the passage we're going to look at today says that um, when we look to pleasure to give us a full and meaningful life, we're going to be disappointed. It kind of answers the question, what if everything you've always wanted isn't enough? And so that's what we're going to think about today. Let me pray for us and then we'll read the scripture. Father, please uh, come and help us. We are here because we want to know you and have hope and believing. And feels like um, Ecclesiastes knocks the legs out of any other hope that we might have besides you. And so we pray that it would have that effect for us so that we might find our real hope in Jesus. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Read with me beginning in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 1. It says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you. With pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. 
I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who'd been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. And so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Well, then I considered all that my hands had done, the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the preacher is laying out kind of a thought experiment for us of how do we find uh, significance and meaning in our lives. How do we find a, uh, the purpose of our lives or what we're here for or what difference we make in this life? How do we figure that out under the sun, which is the last phrase in this passage and one he uses over and over in the book, which means kind of life as we experience it on earth without reference to God or to eternity. Uh, it doesn't mean just as an atheist would think because there weren't really uh, hardly any atheists then when he wrote, but just life without regard to God, if he's there or not. Or life without regard to anything beyond what we can see and feel and touch is what he's exploring. Is there any meaning in it? And he started with wisdom. Uh, if we pursue wisdom with all that we've got and try to gain as much wisdom as we can, will that be the good life? Will that be a life that's meaningful and fulfilling? And he said, no, it wasn't. And we talked about that two weeks ago. So today he turns to pleasure. Next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about work. Um, which none of you are holding out any hope for uh, really fulfilling and satisfying your lives already, I know. But pleasure, yeah, maybe you do. Because uh, for Americans, pleasure is probably the thing we put our most hope in for trying to make our lives meaningful and rich and full. You know, when we talk to each other, we want someone to know us. We talk more about our hobbies than our family, usually. You know, which in a traditional culture would be odd. And we talk about our avocations more than our vocations when we want people to know us. And when we think about ourselves, who we are, and what makes us who we are, our lives, what they are, uh, we think about pleasure. We think about the things that we, when we have leisure to pursue them, are the things that we choose to pursue. Things that we hope will make us have a rich, meaningful life. And the thing about pleasure, though, is that you know good and well, just like Peggy Lee knew and just like Solomon knew, that um, pleasure is never going to give you a rich and fulfilled life. Um, I mean, that's not new information. That's not startling news. Uh, we all kind of know it every time somebody uh, gets rich or succeeds uh, radically in life and they do an interview, they always say, well, you know, it's not all it was cracked up to be. I got to the top of the mountain. There's nothing here. And, you know, you can think of lots and lots of versions of that story. Um, but pleasure is still pretty tantalizing because it feels like if there is a way that my life can be happy and rich and fulfilling, then it, surely it's through pleasure that that's going to happen. You know, surely because happy is probably the main adjective we use to describe a rich and fulfilling life. 
And pleasure's got to be the way to get to that, right? But you notice with pleasure, the best kind of pleasures that you have in your life, that when you experience deep pleasure, it always attaches itself to a sense of wistfulness and longing in your heart, right? There's almost a nostalgic pain that comes with the greatest experiences of beauty that we have in our lives. That's sort of a longing for something that we can't quite grasp, but we feel is there. Like a nostalgia for the future rather than for the past. A nostalgia for something we haven't yet experienced. And pleasure does that for us. It, it goads us like a signpost to something beyond the sun, not just what's under the sun. Uh, but it doesn't deliver us to that place. Right? And so we feel kind of vexed by this. Like you have a capacity for joy in your life and a capacity for appreciation of things that are beautiful and substantial and worth your love and affection. You have a capacity for that, uh, but none of those things will satisfy you. And it seems like a tease. Right? Why do I care? Why do I have this capacity for loving music or architecture or the ocean and its beauty and grandeur and those kind of things? Why am I built with this capacity to appreciate these things when my experience of them always leaves me short somehow? They don't satisfy me. And uh, Solomon writes this and says that, it, that pursuit of pleasure is vanity. It's empty. It's like trying to, trying to herd up the wind. Um, because he wants us to seek a pleasure in our lives that's beyond the sun and not just settle for what is under the sun. And so that's what he's pointing us to. And what I want to point you to is we think about what he says in the passage. Because he kind of goes through and explains uh, his test of pleasure and how it comes up short. I mean, what's he testing when he says in verse 1, I'm going to test my heart with pleasure? Testing to see if it'll work. Right? Will pleasure make me happy? Will pleasure make me fulfilled? Will it give me meaning or not? That's his test. And his answer, he doesn't bury the lead here. He says right in the first one, he says, but it was vanity. It didn't work. And then he describes the test that he put himself through. It seems like a good test in some ways. Um, but he, he's not like a uh, shallow pleasure seeker. He's more like an Epicurean. You know, he's not cotton candy and roller coasters. He's, he's vineyards and live music at his house and things like that. You know, tremendous gardens of great size and beauty, that kind of thing. I mean, he's not just looking to amuse himself all the time. He's looking for deep pleasure, deep satisfaction, um, the richest kind of things that you can attach your affections to. And so he starts out, I'll just summarize, that he tries wine, women, and song and has the money to pursue all those uh, without much limit. He starts with wine. He says in verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. Which um, isn't the way people usually uh, test out the ability of wine to cheer our hearts. You know, the wisdom seems to go pretty quick. But what he's saying is, you know, this is a good thing. It does cheer our hearts. And he's not just like, seeing how much he can stand to drink and how drunk he can get. He's talking about vineyards here. He's talking about uh, all the accoutrements of what is uh, valuable and beautiful about making wine. You know, this, it's an, an image that God uses in the scriptures very often to describe 
uh, how he loves and cultivates and delights in his people. They're his vineyard, he says. And it's sort of the picture, you know, if you make it and you make so much money that you don't uh, need any more money, this is what you'd go do if they just let you. You're going to go buy a beautiful vineyard and walk in the early morning mist and have a whole bunch of other people to do all the work for you, right? And uh, Solomon's doing that. He's trying it. Um, has the people to do the work for him, builds gardens and homes around the vineyards. Um, one thing you start to notice, though, when he describes how he approaches this is that there's a whole lot of the first-person pronoun in this passage. I, 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 me, 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 my, my, my. And one of the things you notice that's vexing about pleasure that he notices here, too, is that the more you pursue pleasure for its own sake... Uh, the more selfish you tend to become and the more exploitative you tend to become. And you certainly see that as he starts to talk about slaves and concubines as he goes on down. Because when he tries uh, women uh, as part of his pursuit of pleasure that's going to make his life rich and meaningful, uh, he thinks sex is going to be a big part of that. And he has opportunity, like most people don't. Uh, Solomon was said to have had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Um, and it's hard to imagine wanting that, but um, it's also hard to imagine not having a conscience about that, isn't it? Um, but one thing that you notice is that very few people, when given actual opportunity to be exploitative in their pursuit of sexual pleasure, turn it down. All right? If people turn down the opportunity to be exploitative with regard to their own sexual pleasure, you know, half the internet would open up immediately. Right? Um, sex trafficking would stop. And so Solomon, brasher than most, you might say, um, but isn't that different from the rest of us in this. But he said that sexual uh, endeavor was not enough to satisfy and fulfill us. Which is also kind of obvious, except to uh, advertisers who think maybe we don't know that as well as we should know that. And then song. He doesn't just like music. He doesn't just have enough money to go to the concerts. He brings the concerts to himself. He has the singers at his house. Like at a uh, birthday party, he can afford to have the band come to him. And he does this. And it's probably pretty great. I can't imagine it's that great for the singers. I don't know. The idea of playing a private party always seems sort of uh, soulless and mercenary to me for people who play music because of the love of music. But nonetheless, it was probably a good paying gig. But he says these things did not satisfy him. You know, music may be your life, but it will leave you empty at the end. And so. This pursuit of pleasure is vain, he says. It's like chasing after wind. It doesn't work. It's elusive. I can feel the wind, but I can't grasp the wind. And that's how my pursuit of pleasure has been for me. And you know how that goes. Pleasure, either when you pursue it for its own sake to give you meaning in your life, it becomes instrumental. First, where suddenly you're like, I'm trying to check off the box. I'm trying to gather, collect these experiences Uh, so that I can say I have them so that then I can tell myself that I'm probably happy because I've checked off my bucket list items. You know, this is the kind of approach when people will tell you, yeah, uh, we did Bryce Canyon. 
why would you pick that verb? <laughs> we did Bryce Canyon. It's not we didn't we don't love Bryce Canyon. We didn't uh, live with deep joy and thankfulness because we got to visit Bryce Canyon. We did it. It's like an achievement of pleasure, uh, which diminishes pleasure. And then often, like we read in the New Testament reading in Titus, that pleasure becomes enslaving to us. You think of sex addictions and alcohol addictions and other addictions uh, that very often our pursuit of pleasure becomes something we can't control, and it controls us instead. But what Solomon is describing here, says he avoided uh, becoming enslaved to pleasure. His wisdom stayed with him. But he became weary of pleasure. Weary of pleasure. Sort of like what you think of when you hear Marie Antoinette saying, nothing tastes. Or when you hear Peggy Lee saying, is this all there is? We become weary of pleasure. It's like chasing after the wind. Now, you haven't learned anything new here, right? Solomon 3,000 years ago knew it. Peggy Lee knew it. You knew it before you walked in. That pleasure is ultimately a tease. It does not satisfy us. And so what do you expect to hear about pleasure at church? I mean, it's church. We're not an Eastern religion that would say uh, your desires for pleasure are the problem. And if you could escape desire, then you would solve your problem, right? Desire for good things, desire for uh, bad things, experience of pleasure or pain. All of that's an illusion. If you can escape from that, then you'll uh, reach nirvana, enter the old soul, and be where you were meant to be. We don't go that far. You'd expect a Presbyterian church to say, what you need with regard to pleasure is moderation, right? Moderation in all things. That seems, that just sounds good to Presbyterian ears. At least it does to mine. Moderation in all things. That's the way. Manage uh, your pleasure so that it doesn't get out of hand and so you can keep enjoying it. That's the good advice. You know, limit your desires. Uh, don't, don't get carried away, right? You know, just be a little reserved about everything. That's the true biblical and right ethic, isn't it? It seems like if I was making up a religion, that's what I would say. I'd say just don't get carried away with your desires too much. You know, rein it in a little bit. Don't get out of hand. But what that's really saying is try to desire less. All right? Don't, don't want so much. And that's not the way the Bible talks about humanness. That's not the Christian ethic. The Christian ethic doesn't say you desire too much, desire less. It says you desire the wrong things. And you desire them disproportionately. Aim your loves at things that are worth loving. That's the biblical ethic. Some of you know this. C.S. Lewis has a very famous passage about this. It says that uh, the problem with our desires is not that they're too strong, but they're too weak. That we're people who go around, we uh, are content to stay in the slums making mud pies because we can't imagine the splendor of a holiday at the sea. And what Solomon is saying is that our pursuit of pleasure under the sun is making mud pies, and there's more to want than that. And we should aim our desires, these capacities we have to appreciate beauty and experience pleasure, we should aim them at something that can really hold up under the weight. And that's what the hope that is embedded in what Solomon says here points us to. That is the pleasure that we're made for. The pleasure that we're made for. Uh, Solomon's an iconoclast. He's trying to say, don't believe in these other gods. They're going to disappoint you. They'll let you down. He's goading us to look for pleasure beyond the sun and not just under the sun. 
At this point, I'm really worried about sounding like uh, the guy that comes to the assembly at the high school to say, hey, kids, staying off drugs is really cool, <laughs> right? Don't go for those pleasures that the world holds out. Come to our Christian nightclub. It's really fun. Uh, or the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I don't know if, you, if this hits any of your age, but they had a public service announcement. Drug dealers are dorks, right? <laughs> and uh, what I'm not saying is a, uh, a puritanical, restricted, uh, afraid of pleasure, overly modest approach to life in this world is really more fun. That's not the Christian ethic either. But what I'm saying is that the longings that you feel for deep satisfaction and pleasure are not teases. Um, those longings are there because you're a human being created in God's image. And there's more to want than what the pleasures only under the sun hold out for us. There's more to want than that. Augustine famously said, you know, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Talking about God, and this is true for us. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. But what I've discovered is that you can hold that opinion with all seriousness and still live a life of pretty much abject pursuit of pleasure under the sun and never really feeling like you experience the heart-satisfying pleasure of a relationship with God. Just holding the opinion that I need a relationship with Jesus to satisfy me, not just the pleasures of this world, uh, that opinion does not really change much about your heart. Right? Hearts have to actually learn this experientially and believe it. Because what Jesus came to do was not to evacuate us from this old, bad, sinful creation and world and bring us disembodied to heaven where we can float on the clouds and live with Him forever. He came to restore His broken creation. Everything in it that's broken by our rebellion, Jesus came to fix. Not just our souls, uh, but our bodies and our environment and our relationships. Um, all of these things He came to fix. His good creation is being restored, not abandoned. And so our anticipation is that the longing and nostalgia we feel at our moments of highest pleasure is pointing us towards something real, that we really will see His face, that we really will live in a world that works with Him, rightly ordered world where proportionately we don't look to things to make us happy, but we look to Jesus to make us happy, and we enjoy the things that He gives us. And this is our hope and expectation of what we start to live in now as Christians. So, when the world is right side up again, when Jesus has finished his work, this will be our experience. Then, and increasingly now, though, worldly pleasures, quote unquote, wine, women, and song, architecture, gardens, vineyards, all the things he talks about here, um, these things have value for us. That we're supposed to enjoy them and use them thankfully not as ultimate values, but as penultimate values. These are things that we enjoy with thankfulness to God who has given them to us, that we enjoy in relationship with God as we enjoy them. Um, and if we separate them from that context, then they get out of proportion. And we start asking too much of pleasure. And we start trying to harness the wind. So we sing about things like this, like we actually believe it. We sing 
Solid joys and lasting pleasures, none but Zion's children know. None but Zion's children know because only we know how to have them in proportion, how to enjoy things with thankfulness, to enjoy them penultimately instead of ultimately. And that's what's held out for us. But how do you, how do you get there from having the opinion that you probably walked in here with if you've been a Christian any time that says, I know pleasure is not going to satisfy me and give me a meaningful life. I know Jesus has to do that. But I still find myself drawn to pleasure, unable to say no or limit myself with regard to them. And I still have all my hope and pleasure. And that's what I dream about. And that's where I find my real joy in my best days. And the answer to that is uh, not an easy answer. It's that you have to train your heart for this. Um, You have to train your heart. Like with anything that is able to satisfy and please a human heart, it takes time and love invested for it to happen. All right? Now, I mean, think about it. If you, if you want to play the violin beautifully because you've heard somebody play it and it was lovely and wonderful and you think, I want that. I want to be able to do that. Well, what do you do? You say, I now have the opinion that violin music is beautiful. Uh, Therefore, I can play it and enjoy it and be delighted. No, you put in time and you put in love and a lot of it. And eventually, uh, the violin can be a source of delight for you. But it doesn't happen automatically or just because you have an opinion. Say you want to uh, enjoy wine. Because even though you haven't had wine, and whenever you first taste it, it doesn't even taste good. Yet you've seen people who seem cool who like wine, so you're going to decide to learn how to enjoy wine. And you have the opinion, I'm going to be a wine person. Like Dana. Right? Or Somalier. Well, you aren't going to be like Dana. You aren't going to enjoy wine like she does. You aren't going to be able to recommend wine like she does. You're not going to be able to appreciate where it comes from and taste the taste of the dirt where it came from and things like she does because you haven't put in the time and the love. And until you put in a lot of time and love, you're not going to get there. Right? You can say you're a wine person, but it's experience that makes the difference in that, right? Or if you want to say, uh, I want to love the Odyssey like Nick Dunlap does. And you think, I'm going to get the Cliff Notes version. Um, Read the Odyssey. I may watch Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Because I'm an Odyssey guy. I'm going to love the Odyssey. Well, you're not going to know the Odyssey, and it's not going to mean anything to you like it does to Nick because you haven't put in the time and the love that Nick has put into the Odyssey. And he's going to appreciate that in a way that you are never going to unless you're willing to put in the same time and love that he has with it. When I first saw the desert, I thought it was neat. That's good. It looks like a place you could ride a dirt bike or a four-wheeler without hurting anything. But you start to put in some time and love and you start to see its beauty. You start to see its diversity, its richness. And those of you who've been putting in the time and love for your whole lives know it better than I ever will. That's how it works. That's how human pleasure and, and affection works. And so time and love invested in a relationship with Jesus Christ are going to be the things that ultimately allow you to find your deepest joy in Him. I can read Psalm 16 that says, in Jesus' right hand 
are pleasures forever. There's fullness of joy in His presence. And I believe that with my whole heart. But I haven't experienced that. I haven't put in the time and love nearly enough to say it like David did when he wrote it, or like some of you were able to say it. Um, it's the time and love that are going to make a difference. Uh, I'm, I'm really proud of you. I got to think about this while I was away too. Um, you people live in the, you know, the YOLO world of all sorts of pleasures available to you, all sorts of leisure to try to pursue them. And you're sitting down on a sunny, not that hot afternoon, listening to a 3,000-year-old ancient Near East wisdom teacher to try to figure out what makes a meaningful life. Are you rethinking your decision about how to spend this afternoon right now? I, I didn't mean it that way, but it's remarkable to me that you would do that. And it's beautiful to me that you would do that. It makes me love being able to be your pastor. And the other thing that I'm proud of is watching you um, enjoy the penultimate pleasures that God's given us in life. This is not a uh, stodgy, uh, stick-in-the-mud church of people. Maybe that's because the whole thing seems to have started around people having parties all the time. But you use the penultimate pleasures penultimately, which is very beautiful. Uh, thankfulness. I've, I've sat around beautiful tables with you all and, and read liturgies of thanks to God. Uh, I've toasted with you to the king, usually, I've noticed, is most of your toasts. And, but we also toast sometimes and say, next year in Jerusalem, right, the Passover toast, which says, this is great, but there's more to want. Next year in Jerusalem. We're hoping eventually that the real pleasures to which these things are a foretaste will be our real experience. Living together, you're learning how to to glorify and enjoy God. Enjoy God, which is what we were made to do after all. Julie and I came across a poem thinking about this idea of pleasure this week, a lot while we were talking about George MacDonald. I think some of you read this at at a bridal shower today. But it's a reflection on the wedding at Cana that where Jesus turned the water into wine at the end of the wedding feast. McDonald says, those wedding guests could have done without wine, surely without more wine and better wine. And then he goes on and talks about God's generosity, how he wants us to enjoy what he's made. But he concludes this way. He says, even they who know whence the good wine comes and joyously thank the giver shall one day cry out, Thou hast kept the best wine until last. And that's how Christians are supposed to enjoy the world, to find pleasure beyond the sun. Let's pray.